Wednesday, good people. How you living out there? Tis the season. I hope you got some holiday cheer going on wherever you are, wherever you're watching from. It's your girl, Kia Kroom, aka the nonprofit fundraising badass. That's with Z's, right? AKA your favorite fundraiser, AKA founder and host of the Black Fundraisers podcast, your favorite and weekly podcast that celebrates, inspires, and equips Black fundraisers to positively impact Black communities, right? If you're a new subscriber, I want to welcome you to the party. Don't forget to get social with me on all my platforms. Tap in with me. I am Kia Kroom on Twitter and at Kia Kroom on LinkedIn and IG. I want to thank you for listening because I know you've got a plethora of podcast options out in these internet streets, in these YouTube streets. So I appreciate your time. And if you're one of my ride or dies, you already know what time it is. You're in for a treat today. And I just want to express my gratitude to you for tuning in to hear what I have to say. So don't forget, visit me online at www.kiacroom.com to see what a sister has been up to in a nonprofit and philanthropy world. We did a little redesign. Let me know if you're digging it. How you feeling about it? A little window dressing. We put it on doves, put a few eyelashes on. Let me know what you think about my new site, right? If you're feeling it. Y'all, before I get into this week's episode, can I just share that I felt the biggest sigh of relief knowing that Brittany Griner has returned home. People can say what they want. I don't care. I'm going to say what I want. I'm grateful. Oh, how my heart ached knowing that she was, I don't even want to go there. I'm just so grateful to know that she's home because I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't so sure she was going to make it through that bid over there. I'm going to just keep it real and say what you might not want to say, right? So my heart is full knowing that she's home and her release and return home has got to be the ultimate Christmas gift for her and her family. So I'm just basking in that joy and just grateful for her safe return. And speaking of gifts, I wanna know what's on your Christmas list. So hit me up on my social platforms and let me know what you're looking to get this Christmas. I know at the top of my list is rest, want to meek, but not sure if that's going to happen this Christmas, but you know, hey, we'll see, right? So I want to quickly pivot to today's episode. I had the pleasure of connecting with a really dope sister who happens to be another home skillet from Cali, just like me. I don't know about y'all, but people from Cali really, really excite me. And I'm not just saying that because I'm from there. I mean, I just happen to think that we're just a really dope group of people and we be on a whole nother vibration and wavelength. I, I just can't explain it, right? But 
that's neither here nor there. I know that you will absolutely love her. She is so dope and just all about it. All things black. Her name is Casey Patterson. She is the founder and chief architect of Social Good Solutions, a black woman owned. Y'all know we love our black woman owned businesses, our black businesses on the Black Fundraisers podcast. So I'm gonna say it again. I like how it rolls off of my tongue. A black woman owned and operated boutique consulting firm in Los Angeles. She is also the founder and chief architect of the Black Equity Collective. So stand by because you'll have an opportunity to learn about all the fabulous work that she's doing through the consultancy and through the Black Equity Collective. Today's episode is all about Black organizational resilience. And I want you to add that term organizational resilience to your nomenclature and get into this episode, which will explain just why those words are so vital when referring to Black-led organizations and Black-led social change. So please stand by as I bring Casey to the Black Fundraisers podcast stage. Welcome, Casey. How are you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you again. No, it's great to see you. And I'm excited for you to tell the good people listening all about the wonderful work you're doing. Good people, you're going to be enriched. This one goes in the books. <laughs> Get your pen and pad ready because you're going to want to know how to plug in with this dynamic sister and the work that she's doing well. If you're in the Los Angeles area or California, because as I always say, it's one of the greatest places on the planet. Why? Because I'm from there. Casey's from there too. Wait, am I right in saying that? You are. California born and raised. Born in what city? I was born in San Diego, raised in San Diego. My dad was in the Navy, so he was stationed in San Diego. Oh, okay. Yes. California bred. That's right. I'm a SoCal girl. I love it. I love it. From a SoCal girl to an Oakland girl. I love it. I am here for it. Show us your shirts. You got on yeah. some threads there. Yeah, Show yeah, yeah. This is one of my favorite shirts. Trust Black women. Hey. <laughs> Listen, don't make me get Lucille, my tambourine. I go grab her. I go grab Lucille. We can have church up in here. Listen, trust Black women. I love it. So yeah, it's like our unofficial uniform at our at our at work. That's right, and I'm gonna get one too. I love it. Casey, I want you to tell the good people listening a fun and little known fact about yourself. Yeah, you know, this is so interesting because I'm sort of in this spirit of celebration. And so I guess I'll share uh, that on Saturday, my husband and I celebrated our 22-year anniversary. And a little known fact is that we met at a baby shower. 
And so the twins that were in utero at the time that brought us together are now seniors in college and well into the beginning of their womanhood. And so we always joke and laugh and say that we track the longevity of our relationship by their age. So yeah, so my husband and I have been together 22 years. We met at a baby, at a co-ed baby shower. So hey, don't don't knock a co-ed baby shower. It's going to be life-changing. <laughs> I might meet my Boaz at a baby shower. That's right. You just might. I might meet my Bo- Boaz. Where are you? I'm. I'm looking. Look. Well, I'm not looking for you because the word says that it, he that man that findeth the wife findeth a good thing. So a I'm not thing. looking for you. You might need to figure out what baby shower is in the cards for us to attend. It won't be mine though. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> it won't look. It won't. I don't plan on look. I'm. The Lord might be looking at me like, okay, well, you just don't know yet. Because yeah, well, we had a, 18 in a couple. Oh, of goodness. Yeah. Well, we have a 15 year old and a 12 year old. So we did a co-ed shower uh, for our oldest, you know, thinking that, hey, you know what? We could pay it forward and help Might match somebody. Some love. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. Well, congrats to you and the hubby on 22 years because 20 years, 22 years, y'all have been through some stuff and seen some stuff and you know, know some stuff. You don't stay married that long if you ain't been through nothing. You got a mighty testimony, as they say in the Black church. I know y'all, it's a mighty testimony in that 22 years, but congrats on that. Thank you. Yes. So Casey, I am really very much a fan of the work that you do, and you know why. Trust Black women says it all, you know, just in your shirt. But I know you to be the founder and chief architect of the Black Equity Collective. And I would love for you to take a moment and talk a little bit about the Black Equity Collective and share about the work and, you know, what was your impetus for creating it? Yeah, thank you so much, Kia. It's really been a joy, a true pleasure of my life, you know, to be able to shepherd this work. And I often say to people that philanthropy chose me. I did not choose philanthropy. Um, When I was going to college, I studied broadcast journalism. So I wanted to be a newscaster. So I often joke and say, well, thank God I didn't become another talking head. So, you know, philanthropy really chose me. And so I began this work uh, really right out of college. And I spent about 15 years in the nonprofit sector uh, doing everything entry level to executive level, running an organization. By the time I decided to stop uh, working full time and begin consulting, my children were very young at the time. And so I felt like I really needed to have the space in my time and my day to be able to be more fully present for them, but also be able to do the things that I really love. So I started consulting in 2014. And out of that, I started working uh, with a trio of siblings who at the time in 2016, late 2015, early 2016, really were just 
incensed at the regularity with which unarmed Black men were being killed and really felt like they wanted to step in and help to figure this out. They knew that they didn't have a magic bullet. They knew that they didn't have, you know, the the answer, but they felt like they could contribute uh, to some solutions around this, but didn't really, really know how. And so they hired me as the consultant to help them figure this out. And so that led to a four year long initiative called the Black Equity Initiative uh, that they fully funded. And we resourced 15 black led organizations across two counties, uh, Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties. And the work really focused on funding organizations that were confronting systemic racism where Black people were disproportionately harmed. So that was really the crux of the work and really trying to answer the question of why was there, you know, such this, this culture really around police killings and so on and so forth, and really trying to figure out root causes. And so the work of the initiative was really focused on funding organizations who were involved in root cause solutions. And so we funded organizations who were working in education, in criminal justice reform, and in workforce development. Those were sort of the three issue areas that we focused on for that four-year period. Well, about halfway through the initiative, these uh, Black leaders, who are some of the most powerful leaders here in Southern California, you know, they started really encouraging us and urging us to think beyond the initiative. Because at the time, you know, in 2017, this is way before pandemic, way before George Floyd, there really wasn't a culture in philanthropy that focused on Black issues. And so this initiative was really pioneering with just five years ago. And so, yeah, just five years ago. And and remember, I I just want to interject something. In 2014, we know what was going on. You know, the Mike Brown shooting, Mike Brown, Ferguson, Martin. Ferguson uprisings and unrest. And I'm just thinking about where you had to be in 2014 here as a mother with small children. Like, I just want to backpedal a little mm-hmm. bit about where you were in your consulting journey. And I'm going to give the mic back to you as a mother with young children. I don't care what anybody says, when you make the pivot, like I had decided in my career not too long ago, that it was time for me to move from working full time for other people to exercising and walking in my creative vision and Mm -hmm. founding, you know, Kia Kroom fundraising and philanthropy and fundraising in black. So I don't want to glaze over what you had going on personally That's a big Herculean step, but not only that, we had the Ferguson uprisings, you know, the climate, just contextually Mm -hmm. what was going on as you came to with this vision of yours. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I often say that one of the most difficult, but also the most energizing parts of the work is that you are the work. You are the work. Talk about it. You know, and... That can be extra emotional weight that is often unseen, that is often not talked about. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. When I'm looking at my own son, who at the time when I started consulting was about seven years old and sort of thinking about, you know, the future that was before him, 
certainly, you know, like what's happening in the world is impacting how you think about this and how you engage in the work. And I will say that, you know, at the time, this is one of the things that I'll just sort of plug in terms of how funders should really think about orienting their work, because, you know, there was this sort of inspiration, right, that came from the funder, but they also had a different problem statement initially. Their problem statement was one of belonging. They really wanted to focus in on how can we help Uh, people to feel a deeper sense of belonging in society and a deeper sense of connection that they don't feel isolated from one another, that they don't feel strangers to one another and therefore dehumanize them. That was their problem statement. When we took this question to the Black-led organizations, they had a different problem statement. Their problem statement (laughs) was around systemic racism, you know, and the longstanding perpetual nature the, you know, just the way in which systemic racism has just created perpetual harm. And so their problem statement was, I think, much more precise. And so had we answered the call of the initiative using the funder's problem statement, we would have had a very different orientation. We would have had a very different initiative. But the fact that we actually answered it using the problem statement that the BLOs defined meant that we could have an initiative that was focused on systemic racism where Black people were being disproportionately harmed. So I want to just lift that up and the importance of not just listening to community, but actually following the direction of community and not being so married to, you know, the way you think things should be that you're unable to pivot. And so I give these funders a lot of credit for being able to pivot, you know, and really embrace the problem statement that was being defined for them. No, I appreciate that the importance of following community, engaging community, right? Absolutely. And hearing what their lived experience has been rather than just being prescriptive is what I'm hearing you say. And assuming that traditional models, you know, whatever folks are grappling with, it'll get fixed, you know, because contrary to what, this is going to really go against, you know, some of what some folks believe to be true. I mean, just money isn't going to fix this stuff. You know, it's not. And we've seen that. We saw corporations, even philanthropies, throw wads of money out. And in some cases, it was still a drop in the bucket. Let's Mm -hmm. be clear. You know, you might've thought you were really doing something out here with these multi-year commitments, but it was still a drop in the bucket. When you think about the inequity that stacked up, I can keep going up to the ceiling. It was still a drop in the bucket. And money is not just going to fix this broken system. Well, money doesn't change your heart. That's what it boils down to. Money doesn't change your heart because fundamentally what we're talking about, and I often talk about this as spiritual transformation work, you know, Jesus said, you have to be born again. You know, you know, know listen, you're going to make me get Lucille. I told you we could have church, Kia. 
So, you know, we really think about this work as spiritual transformation. Like you have to be born again. Like you have to be transformed in the way you think, in the way you do, in the way you approach problems, in the way that you approach people. Yes. You really have to be transformed. And so the Black Equity Collective, which was born out of the initiative, as I was saying, these leaders came to us about halfway through the initiative and really implored us and said, listen, it is not enough that this one funder gets it. It's great that they are investing in Black-led work, but they cannot be the only one because it's not sustainable if we only have one funder who sees the value of investing in Black-led work. So they really implored us to use the influence power, right, that funders have with one another to be able to spread the word with other funders about the importance of investing in Black-led work. And so I'll never forget, uh, we were at a local organization in, two, in October of 2019. Again, we're six months before the pandemic hit, a good nine months before uh, the lynching of George Floyd. And we sat in that room with these 15 leaders and we asked them this question and said, well, tell us what is your vision for black equity absent the initiative? What would it look like in 10 years? Like what does black equity mean to you? And I'm telling you, Kia, in one afternoon, in a matter of six hours, these leaders came with a 10-year plan that had a vision, measurable objectives, and a real sort of strategic priorities. It was almost like they had been waiting for somebody to ask them the question. And once the question was asked, that vision got unleashed. And that vision is the Black Equity Collective. And so it's really been my work to bring to life the vision that these leaders had for what Black equity could be and should be in the greater sort of body politic, if you will. And they talked about things around being able to build their institutions. They talked about how often they, they're underfunded, and we have data going back 20 years that hmm. underpin that point, that Black-led organizations are underfunded. And when they do get funding, their funding is often specific to projects. It is rarely general operating support. It is rarely multi-year. It doesn't give them the ability to actually build the longevity and the sustainability of their institutions. Yes. And so that's what they wanted the Black Equity Collective to offer. They wanted us to be in the space offering a different message around Black permanency what it means to have organizations that are on the front lines of social justice, that are pioneering some of the most transformative human-centered policies uh, that we've ever seen in this country, and what it means for them to be working with scraps and pulling together their innovation and their resources when really they have been structurally underfunded and how much further they could go in this collective vision around human-centered policy, around structural transformation, how much further they could go if their institutions were funded and supported uh, to do that work long-term. And so that's really the mission of the Black Equity Collective is to bring funders and communities together, to join them together in the vision around long-term sustainability of Black-led organizations. And again, that vision came directly from the leaders themselves. And so that's why I say it's my honor that they have entrusted me with the responsibility to shepherd that vision. 
Now, this is a beautiful thing. And thank you for giving that Genesis story. I love it. Listen, I love a good Genesis story now, you know, where you can just kind of get into, you know, how this whole thing became this mission and this vision and, you know, how it became fruitful and concretized into what you're doing every day, right? To affect change and Black liberation. Like, I'm totally, totally here for it. So good people, it, this was my first time hearing it, right? Although I've researched and, you know, done a little bit of studying of the work that you're doing. And by the way, there's some great information on the website. I'm going to share the link to the report that you all prepared. Um, mm -hmm. You want to speak to that and make sure we'll make sure to put the link in the show notes. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that we've put out in the field. The first one really came out of the initiative that I talked about with those 15 organizations. And they spent a year grappling with what I called the hard questions. Okay. And these were questions that, you know, they would come and like whisper to me and say, well, you know what we really need to talk about is, and they'd lay out what we really need to talk about. And after that happened about five or six times, I said, you know what, you guys, we're going to talk about it. That's what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it. So we put those questions on the table and they spent a year in, in convenings with one another in deep uh, conversations with one another, building trust, really grappling with some of these issues that it surface issues like how do we make this real for funders? How do we help funders to get it? Issues like how do we uh, how do we maintain uh, the uniqueness of our work in the context of a multiracial coalition? You know, so all of these issues that they didn't feel like they had the freedom and autonomy to really discuss. Uh, they they had the ability to discuss with one another. And so out of that year-long process came the principles for Black equity. And these were intended to be principles that they believed were the core tenets of what it means to pursue justice and equity for Black people and how to actually disrupt injustice at scale. And yes. so those principles are truth, strength, strategic disruption, and love. And so these four principles have been the guiding light, if you will, for how we formed the Black Equity Collective, how we operationalize the collective, and how we talk about the work more generally. So that's sort of one publication, is yeah. the Principles for Black Equity. The other publication that I think you're referring to is this report that we did uh, coming out of the pandemic. Because again, what we saw was there were many <laughs> funds that were being stood up, all the PPP dollars all the rapid response dollars that were happening from philanthropy and by and large, Black-led organizations were being completely left out. And so, you know, again, this was right in the aftermath of George Floyd and there was this great awakening that was happening in philanthropy of all of a sudden saying like, oh my gosh, we're not doing enough for Black folks. We're not doing enough for Black organizations and how do we do more? And so we were in our sort of formation process at the collective where we were shifting from the initiative to the collective, we had a number of funders come to us and say, can we actually give money to you to distribute to uh, Black organizations across the Southland? And so we said, sure. So we ended up standing up a microgrant program 
that funded 32 Black-led organizations with basically what would have been a PPP loan that they weren't able to access. So these were organizations that didn't get a PPP loan and that didn't get any sort of philanthropic support uh, to really shore up their operations during the pandemic. And so we worked with UCLA and our research partner at USC, Dr. Anjumarie hancock Alfaro, to really analyze what was going on with the PPP loans. And so the report that you see on the website is what speaks to that. The fact that we sort of became a bridge, you know, to these organizations that, but for the collective and the microgrant that we stood up, would not have received any funding whatsoever to stop GAP you know, the losses that they were experiencing and the increase in demand for their services as a result of the pandemic. And so we were able to provide them some funding to help stabilize them. Yeah, I'm really encouraged by this sharing that you're doing, this testimony. I'm really encouraged. You know, I love a good testimony. You listen to me long enough. If you haven't, you continue to listen You will learn. I love a good testimony because seriously, this Mm -hmm. is what happens when we walk in our passion and our calling, right? When we trust the convictions we hold and walk in them. And I hope that somebody's watching this that has been grappling with whether or not it's time to do something. Yes. With whether or not I should come forward. Now is the time. That thing that you've been sitting on, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing or who's at the table or who's not. If you're not there and you've got a wonderful idea that you're passionate and gifted, right, to carry out, don't wait. You're looking at two sisters that decided we weren't going to wait for somebody to bring a resolution to benefit our community. That's right. You You are the resolution. You weren't going to wait. I decided I wasn't going to wait. I decided that I'm tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of reading creatives that denigrate Black children, Mm -hmm. that denigrate Black men, and Black women and purport white saviorism and seeing organizations run to marketers that are perpetuating these harms in these creatives, in these narratives. Mm -hmm. And you know what I said? I said, I'm going to do something about that. And I created my company, Kia Kroom, fundraising and philanthropy because I couldn't find someone Mm -hmm. to write direct response appeals that are assets framed, that speak to the aspirations of children and youth like me that lived Mm -hmm. in the hood, you know, that didn't show them with snotty noses and tattered clothes, as my mother would call it, because although I grew up poor or poor, and some mother, some southern <laughs> mother might say, I grew up poor, didn't even have the other O and the R on it. I didn't walk around with a snotty nose. My baby hairs were laid. My socks had ruffles on the bottom of them. My dresses were pretty. We just didn't have some things. That's right. That's we just right. didn't have some things. But even in the midst of not having things, we had a lot. We had love. We had ambitions and goals. And what I'm hearing from you is that you were done 
you know, with the narrative that had been perpetuated 2014 and evermore, mm -hmm. because you got receipts, I got receipts that this thing has been going on for a long time. When you talk about funding inequity perpetrated on black led organizations, right? And you decided that you would be that bridge. So right. I, if you're listening and you're second guessing when and where, what you waiting on, sis? That's what right, you waiting Kia. on, brother? I mean, because the reality is, is that the, the resolution is within you, right? It's within you and it's around you. And I think that one of the things I wanted to really debunk was the myth that we can't find Black-led organizations. Thank you. <laughs> you know? And so we found 32 of them in a matter of weeks, you know, uh, to fund. And we actually got applications. I think we got 53 or something like that applications, but we only had money to support 32. And so we were able to find these organizations. Likewise, with the Black Equity Collective, right now, we have a membership base of 53 Black-led organizations across three counties and a waiting list of 25. So BLOs are out there. Yes. They are out there. They are doing great, Incredible innovative work. work. They are working from their blood, sweat, and tears. They are working out of their own trauma. They are working from their own pain. They are working from their own hopes and their own ambitions and from their own desires to see their communities thrive there. And what they need is the investment in their work. They need the, the trust that they have answers that they are fully capable of self-determination and that they don't need, you know, sort of this sort of patronizing, you know, paternalistic approach, you know, that we often see in philanthropy, which I think funders are getting better, particularly in Southern California. You know, I think that there is starting to be a culture in philanthropy and particularly in the nonprofit sector where nonprofits are starting to demand a different set of behaviors That's and right. a different set of expectations from funders and funders are responding. And so I do give, you know, philanthropy a lot of credit for working their way, you know, toward, toward yeah. stepping up and shifting practices in the way that really do benefit community. There's still a long way to go. You know, there's a long history of sort of the way things have have always been in philanthropy that needs to be deconstructed so that, that it can part. be transformed. But I do want to just honor and respect, you know, funders who are stepping up to the plate yeah. and really doing the hard internal work of shifting practices in the way that they show up in community. Yeah, I'm seeing some encouraging gains, some encouraging results, and I celebrate that. And I think two things can be true at a time that That's right. I, I agree. I'm celebrating it. I also acknowledge that there's still tremendous work to do and there's still tremendous opportunity for philanthropy to show up. And I still believe that there are some people that are going to have to move out of the way. That's right. You know, that are kind of standing in the gap right now and they're going to have to move out of the way or they're going to get run over by the train, you know, and that's the story that I'm sticking to because I'm not just speaking on the side of this Zoom square as someone who's read the metadata and read the statistics, I've experienced it firsthand. I've worked with Black-led, Black-serving organizations the majority of my career and the times in which I did work 
for black serving organizations that were white led or where the leadership was overwhelmingly white, I saw the preferential treatment they received, the privilege that they enjoyed. I even saw with my own two eyes, multinational or global corporations that wanted to dole out funding to these white-led organizations, despite the fact that the, the organization wasn't necessarily in their cause area, right? Mm -hmm. But when I worked at black-led organizations that were in their cause area, these same multinational corporations acted as though we were invisible, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the disparity and inequity is real, but I do celebrate progress in the struggle. Casey, I want to lift some. You and I spoke a few weeks ago and mm -hmm. you broadened my expanses. And I love, can I just say, I love when you can talk to a sister or a brother and get some enlightenment because I don't claim to know everything. You know, I'm very yeah. malleable and teachable, you know, although I do know some stuff now, mm -hmm. I don't claim to know everything. You changed the way that I look at the term capacity building, right? And this is a term that everyone's heard of that does this work, capacity building. You upped me on the Black Equity Collective's nomenclature and the use of the term organizational resilience. And I thought, okay, organizational <laughs> resilience. Yes, I like that. I like that a lot. And you talked about how the Black Equity Collective is working with BLOs, or for those of you that haven't called that, what do they call it? Acronym. The acronym. Black led mm -hmm. organizations, right? BEC is working with BLOs to build their organizational resiliency. I'd love for you to define organizational resilience and why yeah. it's important to make that distinction of organizational resilience building from capacity building. Thank you so much for this question. I love this yeah. question. It's actually one of my favorite things to talk about. Capacity building is actually a curse word to us. <laughs> and, you know, there's a, we talked a few minutes ago, Kia, about the ways in which philanthropy is evolving. And I think yes. that language language is such an important tool that we need to embrace in terms of the way in which our sector can and should evolve. There are a number of terms that we really need to retire and do. Hello. <laughs> you know, Hello. capacity building is just one of them. But, you know, terms like program officer, why are we using officer? Why are we using a term that connotes policing and surveillance when it comes to a relationship with community? You know, so that's one term. Terms like risk, why are we signing something that's risky when the work of philanthropy, quite literally the definition of philanthropy is the love of humanity? Why is that risky? Right. Right. Why is that risky? <laughs> so, you know, there's a number of terms that we need to reconsider in our sector. Yes. And capacity building is one of them. And really the way I see capacity building and why I, I think of it as a pejorative term and how I, I joke about it as a curse word is because it's really like a nice, nasty word. 
You know, it's really a term that's a nice way of saying, we don't think you have what it takes. And so we need to build your ability to do whatever it is that you do in a way that we think is the right way to do it. Right. And so it's- Imagine it's nice, that. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice, nasty term. And the reality is, is because of the way that Black-led organizations have been structurally underfunded, the lack of capacity is not the responsibility of the BLOs. It is the responsibility of the sector that hasn't been funding them. And so to say that we need to build capacity, quote unquote, build capacity in organizations, to me is a deflection of responsibility. It puts the responsibility on the organizations who don't have the multi-year grants, who don't have the kind of resources and capital to be the able to the human social capital, the social capital, the, to, the ability to dial for dollars, right? Into the to invest in networks there. or the, you know, these sought after networks, the nerve of somebody to say, you need a and, little bit of work, boo boo. And to put it on and to put it on the organizations yes. uh, for their inability to pay uh, market rate salaries, you know? for their inability to provide a competitive benefits package. That is capacity. Like the lack of quote unquote capacity is really the lack of funding. That's really what it is. And we can't put that responsibility on the organizations that are already lifting and punching way above their weight, way above their weight, weight class. And so for us, what we're trying to get at is to how do we shift language and how do we get to a point of capacity building to me speaks to an input. It speaks to something that we're trying to do versus a result we're trying to have. I and so it. for us, the word organizational resiliency is really about the outcome. What do we want out of this investment? We want organizations to be strong. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be resilient. We want them to be able to weather uh, the ebbs and flows of change. We want them to be able to weather the ebbs and flows of funding. We want them to be able to have the strength and the stability to have longevity. And so their resilience, the, or, the, the investment in organizational resilience is really the outcome that we're seeking. And so we're really trying to do away with words that are pejorative and words that actually don't get us to the outcome that we want and that really don't honor all of the assets and the strengths that our Black-led organizations have been leading with for generations. Listen, I'm two seconds away from getting up and getting Lucille, and I'm going <laughs> to tell you why. This word really, these two words, organizational resilience, really, and the conversation that I had with you and mm -hmm. your team members really enlightened me. And I'm not ashamed to say that I learned something from another, some, some sisters, mm -hmm. some black women. And can I just point out the fact that I love, and I don't want to digress, the fact that this is an all black female team here. If you got a brother working on something, I didn't see him on the site. I was just too <laughs> juiced, just hyped about the fact that these are beautiful black women here standing, and I'm not into you know, this whole, this strong black woman, I don't want to propagate that, but I saw how strong you are 
in these principles and the work that you're doing, I saw that strength when I looked at the pictures of you and your team, you know, you. because before I bring folks on here to talk to the good people listening, I may want to know who they are, what they yeah. look like, what they got to say, you know, like I quality is sure. And, you know, I was just blown away you can feel it. You can, you're not just reading it. You like, this is what these sisters stand for. And the reason I thought that it was important for us to discuss this mm -hmm. is because when someone says capacity building and they're referring to your ability to pay a living wage to your team or your employee, I know founders that don't even have a salary. That's right. And haven't even had a payday, but they're pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into these organizations while they're working somewhere else. That's right. Because they're impassioned enough and they care enough. So does that person not have the assets and the vision here, you know, and the heart here to do the work? Are you, how are you defining capacity? Because That's I right. know people that don't have a payday. I also know people that have a payday, but are being paid well below mm -hmm. a livable wage. And they're supplementing their salaries by working, you know, doing whatever they need to do. Full, not We're not talking part-time. We're talking, I know folks that have full-time jobs and that are still doggone, you know, running these organizations full-time, burning the candle at both ends, That's have right. incredible lived experience. So how do you measure my lived experience, the fact that you're looking at someone right now who survived intergenerational poverty? I think I need to talk about how that came to be when you, when I traced my tree and found that my great grandmother was born a slave mm -hmm. and was 10 years old at the end of reconstruction and immediately went into a career of sharecropping. If you, I don't think mm -hmm. I need to talk about how, you know, I've lived it. You're looking at a person who survived homelessness as a teen who survived teen pregnancies and assaults and all kinds of things. That does it. So, so how are you really measuring my capacity? That's right. right. That's right. This word, what we're talking about is real. And I thought that it was important to lift this up so that number one, good people listening, we add organizational resilience into our nomenclature, right? Into our day-to-day -day usage, right? When we're referring to aspirationally what we want the result is to be, we want to be more resilient in our ability to respond to the issues we're seeing play out on the ground. And it's not because we lack, right? We hadn't been invited to the party, right? So I thought that- And we saw that, Kia. That yeah, and we saw that, Kia, even through the pandemic. I mean, so many organizations, and not just Black-led organizations, across the board, so many nonprofits, their mission may have been education, but all of a sudden they found themselves in housing and in food security, mm -hmm. you know, because this is what their families were needing, what their communities were needing. And so 
we're finding even just two years looking not too far, you know, in our rear view mirror about how organizations needed to be resilient so that their communities could survive. And we need to be standing with them, standing beside them, fueling their work so that they have the ability to do that and more, right? We had so many organizations that lost staff during the pandemic because they got burned out, they're dealing with their own trauma, so on and so forth. And so we need to be able to buoy organizations and invest in their work, in their leadership, so that they have the long-term sustainability and the longevity that we need them to have. We depend on these organizations in our society and we need to fund them like we depend on them. Absolutely. So I just had to lift that up. I thank you for indulging me. And I want to get into a little fun, although this is fun for me. Although, you know, talking about this and I sense the same with you, it's not, it's work, but it's not work because we're so passionate about it. You know, so I just want to say one more thing, if I can, Kia, before we get into our last little bit, you know, you mentioned our all female black staff and, you know, I do want to celebrate that. And, and I also want to say that it is data driven, right? Because uh, we had a report recently that came out here in Los Angeles that showed that 71% of nonprofits here in LA are led by women, 71%. And 58% of nonprofits here in LA are led by people of color. So when you combine those two things, you recognize that it's largely women of color who are on the front lines leading in nonprofit organizations. And when you look at their leadership compared to how their organizations are funded Mm -hmm. and compared to how they're able to pay their leaders and pay their staffs, we are dealing with economic injustice We are dealing with gender injustice. We are dealing with racial injustice. And so all of these equities, they they are intersectional in nature. And so part of the, the choice that we've made around our staffing is to really invest in those sort of intersectional issues and really look for a staff that not only come from the community and experience the same, you know, hopes and dreams, trials and errors, you know, that folks that we're serving experience, but how can we also be a model for what it means to have an equity-driven approach to how we staff and compensate our staff. No, I love that. And I noticed, I definitely noticed. So thank you for lifting that up. So Casey, we've arrived at the portion of our show that I call For the Culture. Hey! 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 (laughs) Where we talk unabashedly about hip-hop, about rap, We do that to pay homage to Black culture, hip-hop and rap, because while hip-hop and rap is on cat food commercials, the Mm -hmm. Super Bowl, shows that we're watching, I remember a time when that wasn't always the case, when there was a great deal of anti-Blackness, 
perpetrated on that genre. And I believe that there still is some mm -hmm. anti-Blackness. We don't have to get into, you know, how and where it manifests itself, but there's some anti-Blackness that still perpetrates. So we don't receive that. We embrace hip hop and rap culture here. And with that, I thought I would ask you in the spirit of Black resilience, mm -hmm. right? When we think about Black resilience and what that stands for. What's a rap or hip hop song that comes to mind for you that speaks to Black resilience? Oh my gosh, I love this. Well, and it's so funny because just the other day I sent my kids some screenshots of different artists. And basically, who is this? See, testing their hip hop and their R&B knowledge, their history knowledge to see, yes. see how well they did. Uh, so it's important. It's important for us to celebrate uh, the brilliance in our community in all of its forms. Right. So, you know, I'm going to show a little bit of my age and my era here. And I'm going to say that the when I hear this question, the song that really speaks to me is Tupac, Keep Your Head Up. You better talk about it. Yeah. And I feel you like, you know, about it. the lyrics, you know, even though you're fed up, you got to keep your, keep head, your up. head up. Hey, I miss that brother. And you are yeah. absolutely right. Brilliant brother. Yes. Brilliant brother. What's that part he said? Got money for war, but can't, can't feed, feed the poor. The hey. <laughs> I just, that, that to me is such an embodiment of Black resilience and how we have been keeping our head up despite it all. Despite, despite it, all, it all. We have been keeping our head up and keeping each other heads up. Like we've been lifting up one another in spite of it all. I told somebody, you know, when um, I think that it was when, and this was another horror, you know, when the Asian women mm -hmm. were slain in Georgia, you mm. know, and I was talking to some Asian sisters and an Asian brother, and I said, listen, you know, I think that the Black community is one of the most compassionate and loving communities on the planet. You know, we know what inequity feels like, you know, so we have empathy. That's and, right. I said, and, and I'm empathetic to what happened. You know, that was such a horrific, you know, it was, it was horrific and traumatic. I said, and let me tell you something else, though. If you've not heard from anybody Black, it's probably because we're still grieving Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. Ahmaud Aubrey, but even George Floyd, but even in our grief, even in our wounds, we might be bleeding from the shoulder, the knee, the back, whatever, you know, we still cover other people's wounds. You know, that's the kind of community that's right. that I come from, is that we care, we embody love of mankind. You know, that's if you, right. if you really want to know the truth, and I believe that. So when what he's talking about in that song is that resilience, and just like the oxymorons that we see play out day to day, you mm -hmm. know, it's stuff the mm -hmm. brother was talking about in that song. And that song came out in what? I can't 95, remember. 95, maybe. 94, 95. Yeah. And yeah. it still rings true. In fact, when we get off of here before my next call, I'm going to listen to that song. That's right. Put a little Tupac on. Lift your spirit. Little, put a little Pac in my day. <laughs> 
Well, no, I agree with you and I love that. And I'm really delighted that we got the opportunity to spend a little bit of time today on the Black Fundraising Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Thanks for hanging out with me. And is it anything you want to say to the good people listening before we roll out? I don't think so. Just, you know, have a blessed and beautiful holiday season. You know, I just, I, I wish you all the best. And Kia, thank you for your work. Thank you for uplifting the voices and the perspective of, of those of us who are doing the good work in philanthropy, sort of trying to change practice and culture in our sector. Thank you for giving us a voice and a platform and making us visible. I appreciate you, sis. I appreciate the work that you are doing and just want to continue to encourage our folks out there indeed keep your head up keep striving keep keep your brilliance you know keep be the standard you know that we we are known to be be the standard and uh, we're going to continue to keep our head up and we know that the best is still yet to come that's right i agree with that and co-sign that and good people listening i'm going to echo Casey, I hope y'all had some good Thanksgiving vittles. If you like me, Christmas comes. I don't do a lot for Christmas. I just celebrate Emmanuel. You know, I I celebrate the Emmanuel and, you know, have a light meal. But I go all out on Thanksgiving. And if you had an opportunity to behold. I saw your brunch. To behold, (laughs) I had to brush my shoulders off one time because I did the Lord's work. Yes, you, you know, did. Uh, yes, on that, did. that brunch, you know, what I do the day after Thanksgiving, not only do I lay Thanksgiving out, the day after Thanksgiving, I have the post Thanksgiving remix brunch. You know how Puffy say he invented the remix? I invented the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving day. Remix. I love remix. it. I saw your Instagram photos. Yes. They were lit. Yes. yes. <laughs> if you can behold that, good people, you just got to behold that. You know, you could go to LinkedIn. I even put it on LinkedIn. Some people might say that's not professional. To you, yeah, it hey. might not be. But to me, you got to know me and know where this comes from. And it's rooted in that culture. You know, rooted in love. It's rooted rooted in in love. love, That love of mankind, right? Because I love to feed my folks and, you know, just fellowship. So I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Have a happy holiday season, although we're going to politic a little in between then. And just remember to take care of yourselves because rest is resilience. That's right. Say that again. Rest is resilience. Rest is resilience. So good people, I hope you enjoyed this convo. Until next time, stay tuned, stay down, and keep your head up.